You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Happy Friday! All right. Friday is when we're recording, not when you'll hear this episode. Happy Wednesday! <laughs> and today we are tackling the big kahuna, the Mahabharata. What does kahuna mean? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard people say it, so sounded appropriate. <laughs> it's It sounds Hawaiian. Oh, I think it is Hawaiian. Let me look it up real quick. Side tangent before we even started. In Hawaiian, it means an important person or the person in charge, or a wise man. What? I don't know. This is going to have to be a longer internet search of the origins of that phrase. Anyways, back to regularly scheduled programming. So we're going to talk today about the Mahabharata, and we will talk about the story, we'll talk about some of our favorite moments or some key moments of the story, and kind of bring in elements from the Palace of Illusions and the Great Indian novel that we wanted to compare. And then we also have a little bit about the Mahabharata in general, some recommendations if you want to learn more about the story. Yeah, and we made this disclaimer in Palace of Illusions as well as the Great Indian novel, but in case you're here because you came across this episode and just want to learn about the Mahabharata, I want to say this disclaimer again, and that's that I never read the Mahabharata, and neither has Trithi. We've heard about it we've heard renditions of it we've read parts of it but never the original text so we might be wrong in some parts of this episode very likely (laughs) is basically inevitable (laughs) (laughs) so the Mahabharata is probably the longest poem ever written like Neha said neither of us have read the Mahabharata and for this episode my plan was to actually read the Mahabharata oh ambitious (laughs) yeah i'll tell you how quickly that devolved because i was trying to find a version that would be manageable and the problem is the range of options is so vast so the original versions in sanskrit i obviously cannot read because i don't know sanskrit there's translations into english and there's one that i think is pretty famous by Chakravarti Rajagopalachari. That one I don't have on me and I don't think is available in this country. I know my parents have it, so I couldn't read that one. And then I saw actually a pretty new one called The Mahabharata, A Modern Retelling by Carol Satyamurthy. That one was in around 700 pages, so I could have read it, but then I was trying to look into the author, and as far as she knows, she has no other scholarship of South Asia or its literature. She has never lived on the South Asian subcontinent. So I didn't really know what her claim to write this book. And then the shortest one I saw was by R.K. Narayan, who's a pretty famous author. He's written The Guide and a lot of other books. And that one's just 250 pages. So I could have read that. But then my thought was, if the original is over 5,000 pages, what am I going to gain from reading a version that's boiled down to 250? Mm-hmm. So all of this is to say, I didn't read it. <laughs> cool. And I actually think in keeping with the older oral traditions of passing down storytelling through just telling different versions, I think that's the better way to consume this story, which we'll talk about a little more. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. But if you'd asked me before we started recording this episode to give you like my version of the Marbarth, it would be so scattered and in pieces But now I'm glad that I did this homework because now I feel like I could do it a little bit more justice when I did retell it to someone if they were interested. I agree. I've learned a lot more about it since we did both the retellings. And based off of that, if there's people out there who are not part of South Asian culture but want to learn the story, I don't think that's a barrier. I think the books we talked about, particularly The Palace of Illusions, is a really great entry point. Mm Mm-hmm. 
little bit more about the Mahabharat. So the author is reported to be a man named Krishna Dvipayana, and it was probably written between 3 BC and 3 AD. It has 18 parts, which is mirrored in the 18 chapters in the Great Indian Novel. And the first English translation was published at the end of the 19th century by Kisari Mohan Ganguly. I know Shruti said that it is the longest poem ever written. You'll hear this a lot when people are talking about the Marabharat, but they say that it consists of one lakh shlokas. And shlokas are basically verses, verses, but in pairs. So you'll hear that it has 100,000 shlokas or 200,000 verses. So in addition to some of the versions I talked about in book form, there's a lot of adaptations that have happened over the years. I think the most famous one, at least for people whose family is recently from India, is the 1980s TV version that was originally on Doordarshan, directed by Ravi Chopra, which I think a lot of our parents grew up on. And at the time... My mom is going to make fun of me for saying it like this, but at the time, there was just one TV channel, right? So the programming was different at different times of the day. You had news in the morning and like cricket in the afternoon, and then the Mahabharat came on at night every week. And so it was such a phenomenon that everybody in the neighborhood like would just sit down and watch the Mahabharat together. Um, and I think that's how their generation learned a lot of the stories. Mm-hmm. There's also a more recent TV version that I found on Hulu. And it came out in 2013, and I tried watching it. (laughs) It's very akin to the 90s serials Mm -hmm. about housewives. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad. And one of my friends told me it actually gets better once the Bandavas come in because they're kids and they grow up together and then the rest of the story progresses. So maybe I will give it another chance, but there's, 50 seasons. How many episodes in each season? At least 20. Oh my, that's like... That's like a lifetime subscription. That's like double Grey's Anatomy, and I thought Grey's Anatomy was too long. I know. All right. Well, per all of our other episodes, do you have a summary of the Mahabharat? (laughs) The summary that I wrote down is, it is a struggle between two cousins, the Pandavas and the Kauravas, And they're fighting to be the heir of the throne, basically. That does not do it justice in the situs because there's a billion stories within the Mahabharat. There's like a hundred different tangents of storylines of different people and different characters and different somebody randomly had an affair and they had a kid. And like, it's, it's just, it's so much. Yeah, I can also attempt a summary. I would say it's a story about justice and not good versus bad exactly but the gray area between good and bad over several generations with the central conflict being within a family and issues surrounding legitimacy and heir to the throne and the kingdom that they will one day inherit that's pretty good i mean but again it doesn't get to like I know. 80% of what's happening. I know. That's like probably 25% of the Mahabharat. Mine was like five. So actually, what surprised me, we mentioned that the book had 18 parts. And of those 18 parts, only the first five are the events leading up to the war. Because in my head, I always think of the story of like maybe 70-80% being all the events and the lineage and the side stories and then 20% being the war but actually 13 out of the 18 sections are just the war and then one of those is also the Bhagavad Gita which many people might be familiar with Mm -hmm. yeah I was actually talking to my fiance about it he was saying that there's a lot of battle techniques and battle formations and just intellectual information about war in the mm-hmm. Mahabharat. And I think in both of the retellings that we read, the war was obviously a pivotal point, but it wasn't like an overload of information of like tactics in right. any way. Yeah, to me, the interesting part about the war is how it affects the individuals and how they have to grapple with 
their relationships. Like they are fighting their cousins or their children. Yeah. I'm curious though, out of those 13 chapters that are the battle, are they short chapters? Do you know? I imagine they're all roughly the same length, but I could be totally wrong. Yeah. And I could see why those chapters might be so big, especially if they do include the Bhagavad Gita. Mm-hmm. Um, since we're talking about the Bhagavad Gita, this is a part in the battle where Arjuna realizes that everybody that's on the battlefield is a father, a grandfather, a son, or somebody who has meaning to him, and he has the inability to fight. And Krishna, who is his chariot driver at that time, helps him through this and tells him the Bhagavad Gita. And that's like this whole portion of the Mahabharata where, long story short, I guess, is where Krishna explains to Arjun what dharma is and how reincarnation works and how his soul isn't tied to his body but his soul is something that will never die and just be transferred through bodies so he's not really he's killing these bodies but he's not killing their souls and the war is meant to be it has to happen and he's just a tool of making that inevitable thing happen and he has a duty to fulfill my version of what i'm saying right now is like not poetic in any way the way that they say in the bhagavad gita is something that people actually live by like people actually read the bhagavad gita for self-help and to help them understand life and the meaning of life and how to be a good person and how it's a philosophical yeah uplifting mm-hmm. and philosophical part of the Mahabharata. Mm-hmm. And because we didn't read the books, I don't have a whole passage, but I wanted to share one part of the Bhagavad Gita. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Sanskrit because I don't know the pronunciation. So I'll just say the translated meaning. And this is in chapter 2, verse 7 in the Bhagavad Gita. And the message is, you have the right to carry out the responsibilities that have been assigned to you, but you do not have the right to the results of your activities. Never think that you are the cause of the results of what you do and don't be attached to not doing anything or inaction. So I think the word right loses some of the meaning of the original. I think right is probably similar to dharma or like duty obligation, not in any positive or negative sense of the word, but just as a neutral term. And my grandfather told me this in different words when I was probably in middle school or high school when I was, I think, studying for exams. And he basically was like, you should be doing the work for the work itself. You can't be doing the work because you want to get an A or because you want to win an award. You have to do the work and commit to the work itself and put all of your efforts into that. And that really stuck with me. And ever since then, I I really tried to like bring that in as a focus when I'm working hard on something or like your dedication is to the work itself, not to the outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very similar to what Krishna tells Arjuna at the time. I think in this part of the Bhagavad Gita too, it's it's now known to Arjuna that Krishna is a god. A god, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he's like mind blown. He's like, "What? But you're like my friend." And what? <laughs> and then and then Arjuna's like, "Show me. Like show me. Prove it." Yeah, Pixar didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> And then Krishna gives Arjun like divine vision and he sees the world through Krishna's eyes. And he's so overwhelmed by this power and what he sees in the world that he begs to go back. He's like, please put me back in my body. I don't like this. And (laughs) and Krishna's like, okay. And I think that's where the Bhagavad Gita kind of ends. Yeah. So on that note, we wanted to talk about some key moments of the story. What is your first one? My first one is, who is Shantanu? Okay. Shantanu is the king of Hastinapur, and he marries someone named Ganga. They have a son who has a name, but then he later is known to us as Bhishma. Why he becomes Bhishma, that I can explain. Shantanu Apparently, Ganga isn't enough for him, so he falls in love with Satyavati. Well, Ganga wasn't his wife. Ganga was just how he had Pishma. Yeah, but still. (laughs) Sus. 
um, he <laughs> falls in love with Satyavati, and Satyavati's a gold digger. Yes, for just... sure. her dad was like, "Nope, nope, nope. Like you already have another son. You're king. You ain't marrying my daughter unless you promise me that her sons are gonna take the throne." And he's like, "No, no, I can't do this. I cannot do this. This is not possible." And <laughs> Ganga's son finds out about this. It's so weird. It's like Bhishma's like, oh, you're not in love with my mom anymore? I'll help you get with this other person that you love. But anyways, so Bhishma finds out that Shantanu is in love with Satyavati and says, I give up everything. I give up the throne. He becomes celibate. He said, I'm never going to have any sons. Please marry Satyavati and their sons will become the heir to the throne. And then he renames himself Bhishma, which means victory, I think. I thought it means vow. Vow or something like that. And so we know him as Bhishma. Mm -hmm. And then Satyavati and Shantanu have two sons who both don't have children. But the second son, he has three wives. And those three wives are left as widows. And Satyavati comes out and she's like, oh, I actually had an affair before I married you, Shantanu. And I have another son. And that son that she has through that marriage becomes a male surrogate to the wives that they left behind. And they together have three sons, who's Tritharashtra, who's the blind king that is a main part of the Mahabharata, and Pandu, who's the father of the five Pandavas. Tritharashtra is the father of the Kauravas. And then this random guy named Vidur, who's the, who's the son of a handmaid. I don't really know his part in the Mahabharata but he exists. Mm -hmm. And the, the part I think they have like these funny descriptions of why. So I guess Bondu is very pale, like his complexion mm -hmm. and through thrush is blind. And this guy who fathered all of these brothers was not attractive. <laughs> so like these three women who had to sleep with him, the first like covered her eyes. Cause she's like, I can't. And that's why the Dhrashta was born blind. And then the second went pale with like fear or just her reaction. And that's why Bondu was pale. I don't know what the third one, I guess the handmaid was like, well, whatever, maybe my son will be king. And she didn't care. Yeah. But I don't know. This raises some potentially interesting discussion points for like how disability is treated with Dhrashta's blindness and Bondu is impotent later we find out but it, well it, it just kind of sucks because technically if you're going by like usual royal hierarchy the eldest son is the heir to the throne mm -hmm. Dhritarashtra was the first son yeah. but because he was born blind they were like mm, he's incapable and made Pandu the king right which how much does it affect your ability to be king if you're blind especially in a day without computers where you don't even need to see like someone can just you're king you can hire someone to read proclamations to you yeah that decision kind of created this war Pandu is the father of the five Pandavas so he has five sons through two wives and Tritharashtra Marry someone named Gandhari, who I really like Gandhari, but she basically, she wears a... She wears a blindfold. Yeah, a blindfold on herself because her husband is blind and she wants to experience the world as her husband, which I think is a crazy sacrifice to make. And they have a hundred sons, the eldest yeah. being Duryodhan. Mm -hmm. And Duryodhan, if you're going by the same royal hierarchy, should have been named... The heir. The heir. But... They were like, uh, three thresh those like seems a little sus because he can't see, <laughs> which is to no fault of his own. Let's make Pandu the king. And then Pandu's like, uh, I got cursed by accident. So then they go back to Dhritarashtra taking the throne. And so Duryodhan should have been named the heir. This is all my opinion, by the way. This is nothing related to the Mahabharata <laughs> and the original scripture. This is Neha's Mahabharata. Yeah. <laughs> he should have been named the heir to the throne, but he wasn't because Yudhisthir, who's the eldest of the Pandavas, apparently has dharma. <laughs> Obviously, Duryodhan's going to lose his shit and be like, yeah, I declare war because what is this crap? <laughs> and that's basically what happens in the Mahabharata. I mean, it's a lot of things that happen in the middle. So this, I think, leads to one of the things I wanted to bring up about... So we know that history is told by the victors, and the way the Mahabharata is told, we are supposed to be on the side of the Pandavas. Mm -hmm. And one of the themes in the story is this concept of dharma, 
And then also like who's right and who's wrong, good and bad. And I just, maybe it is part of the storytelling that we are supposed to recognize this discrepancy and like the lack of actual right and wrong. But sometimes the Bandavas are worse than the Garva. I completely disagree with the original thought of who the protagonist and antagonist are supposed to be. I want to read a story from Duryodhana's point of view because like, what did the Garvas actually do wrong? For example, Duryodhana befriending Karna was a way nicer thing than any of the Pandavas did. Like, Karna was this guy from theoretically a low caste, and he was humiliated in front of thousands of people, and Duryodhana stepped up and was like, you're going to be my friend now. And I haven't heard of any versions that explain why he did this, other than that he was just being kind. Yeah, and also, Yudhisthira is supposed to be, like, this righteous person. Mm -hmm. And he's the one okay let's backtrack actually i'll get there okay pause let's go back in chronological order the next part i want to get to honestly is just Thropadi's swimver because i think all the intervening stuff is like less important but yeah before we get to it i wanted to talk about umbo so the three wives that they bring to get married to shantanu's son bichitravirya are basically acquired <laughs> by Bhishma. So he goes to a Swayamvar of a neighboring king of Kashi, and those three daughters are Amba, Ambika, and Ambalika, because their parents had no creativity. And <laughs> the, he brings them back, I guess with force, because it's not until they reach Shantanu's kingdom that Amba reveals that she's actually already betrothed to somebody. And she begs Bhishma to let her go, and go back to her fiancé, lover, whoever. He finally agrees, but then when she goes back, her original betrothed was like, no, you've been tainted. I'm not taking you anymore. Rude. So now she has to go back to Pishma, and she's like, hey, he didn't take me back because you, like, abducted me and probably took me by force to this other kingdom. Please let me marry you. Pishma was like, mm, sorry, I took a vow. But at this point, she's pissed. She then takes a vow that she is going to take revenge on Pishma. Mm-hmm. Later on in the story, we learn that there's different versions of this, but some versions say she's reincarnated when she is reborn. And some versions say she prayed to Shiva and he granted her a boon and she becomes a man and goes by Shikandi. And towards the end of the story, apparently part of Pishma's vow was that he would not shoot at a woman. So when the end finally comes for him, Shikandi kills him. He dies on a bed of arrows. And that's how he dies because of everything that happened all the way at the beginning of the story. But the reason I wanted to highlight that part was I think it may be one of the only examples of a transgender person in mythology. There may be one other that's outside the Mahabharata and Ramayan. But that was interesting. And I was curious if you thought that they were making commentary on it. I don't know, because I read it for the first time when we were reading Palace of Illusions, and mm-hmm. I thought that they wrote it in very beautifully. But it happens again in the Mahabharata too, where Arjun gets cursed at some point where he has to live his life as a woman. And he becomes a dancer during this one year where he's working in the palace. And so there's multiple parts of the Mahabharata that kind of interchange like gender roles a little bit, which I think... That's just a great example of how non-judgmental the world used to be during that time. And people could just do whatever they want with all these like societal rules and judgment that people get now. I I don't know if I agree. I think it was equally judgmental then. Or really? worse. Yeah. I don't know if there's any commentary on it being good or bad. But I kind of think those stories are included because... There were and are a lot of people who identify as non-binary or transgender. And there are communities in India that have existed way before Pride and the 21st century. And I think that is why they're represented in these stories. I don't know. The way it's portrayed with Amba is that she is now a man and Chikandi is a different entity. So I don't know how the story would have treated somebody who decided to live in a different gender role. Like, if Thropathy decided she was a man 
I don't know how that would have gone. So I think there's nuances. Yeah, I think maybe my viewing is biased because of the retellings that I've read, treating them in a fair way. Yeah. So the next part is Zizvayamra, which is basically Draupadi, who's the princess of Panchal, is this event where they're trying to find a suitor for them. And it's during this that the Pandavas are thought to be dead. They create this event because they kind of want Draupadi to marry Arjun, but Arjun's known to be dead. So what happens is Yudhisthira is named heir to the throne, like I mentioned before, and Duryodhana is pissed. He's like, oh, congratulations. Um, Why don't you go to this palace over here and have fun and celebrate and blah, blah, blah. And he actually is planning to to burn that palace down and kill all the Pandavas. But the Pandavas find out this happens and tricked a family of five, which I think is so sad, to feast in the palace instead. And they die and they find these five dead bodies. And Duryodhana is like, oh, we succeeded. And the Pandavas are like living in secret until this event is happening. And they show up in disguise. Duryodhana wants to think that he's going to win this event and become the wife of Draupadi. What happens in the event is that there's like a wheel that's spinning on the ceiling. Behind the wheel, I think, is like a fish or something. And Mm -hmm. the goal is to shoot an arrow through the spikes of the wheel and hit the fish. And it's like only the best archer in the world can win this event who is we've all believed Arjun to be the best archer in the world this random guy shows up wins this thing and then Draupadi's brother has a feeling that that guy is Arjun in disguise Mm -hmm. follows Draupadi home realizes that these five brothers are the Pandavas they're brought back to the palace and celebrated and are like oh you're alive and then they go back to Hastinapur where Dhritarashtra and Duryodhan were like oh you're alive um (laughs) that's great and they are expected the throne but then the dice games happen yeah so well first i just want to comment on the fact that the pandavas tricked five people into dying for them that's super sus sus so now we're at plus one for the rio then minus one for the pandavas if anyone's keeping track i'm gonna keep keeping track through the episode (laughs) (laughs) yeah because it's like oh let's just kill these five random innocent people like you couldn't think of any other way to escape this yeah come on the swimmer as a concept is in a lot of stories about mythology and in the raman and even aladdin like that's the first time i ever i think as a child saw this like event oh true Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, when I was a kid and I heard about the Swamvar, I thought it was so cool and progressive because, like, the woman gets to, like, evaluate all the men and then pick which one she wants. But now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, actually, it's super regressive. Like, the woman is just standing there all dolled up and then the men have to compete and then the best fighter wins her as a trophy. I mean, there's, like, little moments where Dropadi kind of asserts herself and i think this is where she gets the reputation of like culturally not being looked upon nicely like she's not someone to emulate in contrast to sita who is the quote-unquote ideal wife Draupadi culturally is like outspoken at her swim where she rejects garna and later at the dice incident she also speaks out but also again super messed up that she's become this person to be shunned and Sita is so emulated just because she spoke Has opinions said words mm-hmm. but so Karna we haven't talked about yet do you want to just give a brief summary of who he is so I think we mentioned a little bit Duryodhan gifts someone named Karna like a kingdom just because he's his friend and Karna just becomes Duryodhan's like right hand man basically he doesn't at this point in the story at least have any ties to royal blood he's considered low caste and so when he shows up at this swamber that Draupadi says like you shouldn't be here like you have no means to the throne like you're of a low caste leave basically and like mm-hmm. that really hurts Karna's pride but later we find out spoiler alert is that Karna is actually a Pandava Kunti, who is the three brothers, Beam, Yudhisthir, and Arjun's mom, 
had an affair, yeah, another affair. Well, it wasn't, this one was before she married Bandu. Mm-hmm. And none of her relationships with other men were really affairs. It was like, there's this weird thing throughout the Mahabharata where if people can't have children, they're like, here, you sleep with this other person and then we'll call that child mine. Yeah. So like, Bandu couldn't have children. So he was like, hey, all of these different gods, can you impregnate my wife? And then it'll just be my child. Yeah, so Kunti has another son, who is Karna. And Karna, being Duryodhan's best friend, is actually considered a Korava, until at some point in the Mahabharata, he and a lot of people find out the truth of who he is. Mm-hmm. So the dice games. <laughs> I'm going to have to go another strike against you this year, because what is he? what are you doing? Like, it... <sighs> Duryodhan invites the five Pandava brothers to their kingdom to share some family bonding and also to humiliate them. So while they're there, he just has parties and there's gambling every night and he's trying to goad Yudhishthir, who's the main gambler, into doing something stupid, which he does. So I don't know, like the rest of the Bandavas are chilling. They're just like listening to music, eating. I don't know why Yudhishthir is gambling so much. Maybe he has an addiction, which wouldn't surprise me with how rigid he is in other things. But also being like the definition of dharma and having a gambling problem, like that yeah. doesn't that doesn't track. Yeah, but again, that's one of the things that I feel is one of makes the story complex that it's not black and white. Yeah. So Yudhishthir gets involved in this game, and actually for a while it's going okay, and then they start betting bigger and bigger items. So. He bets his possessions, he bets his kingdom. And actually in the real story, which I don't think was mentioned in the Great Indian novel or Palace of Illusions, the person who is goading Duryodhanan, like there's always like an evil aunt or uncle. Mm-hmm. And it's Shakuni. So Shakuni is Gandhari's brother. And he's the one who's kind of sitting right next to Duryodhan and egging him on and being like, yeah. And it's his dice that they use in the game because the person who challenges the game is supposed to provide the dice. And then finally, Yudhishthir is losing and losing and he keeps betting bigger and bigger things. Finally, he bets himself and his brothers and then Draupadi, who is the wife of all five Bandavas. And this leads to complete chaos. He has to hand over his kingdom. His brothers and himself technically become slaves. And then... Draupadi is dragged out from inside the women's quarters and they start to like disrobe her and she prays to Krishna in that moment and her sari becomes infinite and her quote unquote honor is preserved. But she, again, moment of her being outspoken, she curses the Garavas saying that what they did was horrible and she will not rest until her hair is bathed in their blood. So damn. Yeah. Intense. Intense. It's giving Lady Macbeth vibes. Yeah. (laughs) So there's two things I want to talk about. One is a fact I found. So apparently the dice that they provided for the game, it was Shaguni's dice. And they were enchanted because they were made from the bones of his father. What? Yeah. So the dice always will respond to him, which is why Yudhishthir loses every single game. Isn't that weird? Why would you make dice from your father's bones i don't know strange okay yeah and then the other part obviously is Draupadi and her curse which i think is described pretty accurately in palace of illusions and i think a lot of places point to this moment as the reason for the war mm-hmm. i don't know if i agree i think duryodhan would have literally never given up he would have he kept yeah. trying to do things. So this was just one of the things that happened. Yeah. But unfortunately, Draupadi became collateral damage. And that was the mistake that Duryodhan made, is that he brought Draupadi into it, which I think made the Pandavas stronger. And then obviously this curse that she put on them, she was like, with how relentless and persistent Draupadi is, she was out for revenge. And I think the Pandavas maybe would have been able to forgive and forget even something as drastic as that, but Draupadi would have never. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what kind of urged them to fight. I like that version of it because I don't actually think that the Pandavas rally around Draupadi. 
Yeah. It's not like this thing happens and they were like, how dare you like disrespect our wife and bring her into this. They're kind of meek and take it lying down. Yeah, they're like, oh, that sucks. And then it's, she's the one who curses them and she's the one who chooses to go with them afterwards. Part of the, them losing the war is they get exiled for 12 years and she chooses to go with them. Yeah, she and, doesn't actually get exiled. Only the yeah. Pandavas do. But she, yeah, she makes the choice. And Kunti stays back. She's like, mm-hmm. I'm not going with you guys. She's like, no, nah, bro. I need a roof over my head. <laughs> yeah, she's like, bye. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Draupadi goes with them. And I think that also helped with the Pandavas gaining that like, oh, we need to fight. Like, we need to get through this and win our kingdom back. Because I think if Draupadi maybe wasn't there, the Pandavas would just been like, I guess let's just live in the forest for 12 years and see what happens. Yeah. When I think about this story, because we've been so involved in it for the last couple weeks that I've been getting more and more into it. And when I think about it, I always think now I would like to pass the story on to my children or other children in my life. And I am trying to think of like how I'm going to tell it in a way that I you think like. supports my values. Yeah. And update it almost. And I kind of like that reading that she's like the rallying cry and one of the factors that unites them. I think one of the big reasons is why I read it that way, too, is because we read Palace of Illusions. Right. Because Palace of Illusions is the Mahabharata in Draupadi's perspective. And I think that helps me appreciate the Mahabharata a little bit more. Otherwise, it is a, like very male-centric and testosterone and fighting and battles and mm-hmm. sons and kingdoms and war macho-ness yeah basically (laughs) i had one more thing to say about garna so the other thing about garna is i think he raises this really interesting question of identity because of his upbringing and his background and also his choices throughout the story actually on the eve of the war the korekshetra war i don't remember if this is talked about in the palace illusions but krishna goes to him and asks him to reveal himself and choose the Pandavas because they're his brothers. And he basically refuses this request and chooses friendship over family or like chosen family over blood ties. And I thought that was interesting. Like his choices throughout the story are very different from the other characters' Mm -hmm. choices. And I wish we had gotten more of his thought process or interiority in one of the books we read because there would have been so much to explore. Yeah, to unpack. Yeah. Yeah. So after these dice games happen, the Pandavas and Draupadi are exiled for 12 years. I don't really know exactly what happens in these 12 years, except for I read somewhere that Arjun gets sent to the gods at some point in these 12 years, and he like learns all these techniques and knowledge and gains access to all these weapons. And even though war has not started yet, I think that was like a way of them preparing Arjun for the war that was about to happen. Yeah, then the exile is over and complete. And when the Pandavas come out saying, hey, we've successfully completed our exile, Duryodhan's like, well, I'm not giving your kingdom back, so fight me for it. And then (laughs) the Kurukshetra war begins. There's a lot of exiles in the story. Yeah, like even, I don't think I mentioned this, but there's the first exile. Yeah, then there's a second exile. Yeah, but also there's a rule because Draupadi has five husbands. And so if one of the other brothers walks in on whoever the husband is at that time and Draupadi alone, they are to be exiled for 12 years. But Arjun (laughs) does this which I kind of think is maybe on purpose based off what he did in his 12 years of exile. But he basically just like has the best time of his life, has three wives in this 12 years. I don't know how many children he Well, yeah. So he walks in on, I think, Bhim and Draupadi. And this is where he, quote unquote, abducts Krishna's sister. Does does he actually abduct her? Because in Palace of Illusions, Arjun's like, oh, she's cute. And Krishna's like, that's my sister. But in the original story, I am going to interpret it as they just eloped. Mm. Like they just ran away in secret because it was going to be complicated to... I think they were in love. Like, Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to choose to believe that because otherwise we're going to bring the Pandavas up to three <laughs> on the hits and that's rough. So let's, let's say that they were in love. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Then the war has begun. And like Shruti said in the beginning of this episode, is a long portion of the... Mahabharata, but 
I'm going to do the long story short version of this. There's 18 days of battle. The Pandavas win. That's a really short version. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot that happens. <laughs> okay, why don't you talk about it? Okay, so some of the key events of the Kurukshetra War. One of them is that Krishna almost fights. So the whole time he signed up to basically be Arjun's charioteer, but he never signed up to fight. He was kind of like, that's your thing. I'm a god, you're mortals. Duke it out. And he is tempted to fight on two occasions. I think both when Pishma is in front of them and Arjun hesitates. So one of those instances leads to the Bhagavad Gita. But finally, Krishna does use his Sudarshana Chakra against Pishma, which is like a rotating spiky wheel. But he doesn't actually kill Bhishma. No, he doesn't, but he like tries he's going to use it. Another part, very emotional part is Abhimanyu is Arjun's son through a different wife and he gets sent into this battle formation that none of the Pandavas go into and he tries to penetrate it, but he is killed by Duryodhan, which is a really sad moment. I think it's extra sad because his wife is pregnant at the time and every, mm-hmm. like everyone's like waiting for like him to come back so that he can see the birth of his child. And Arjun ends up killing Garna. So of all of the main characters, Garna is the one who dies. Duryodhana doesn't die in the war. A lot of his sons die, but he just basically is almost about to die and then he surrenders yeah but at this point i read a lot about how at the end of the kurukshetra war like 99 percent of all the men in the kingdom died Mm -hmm. and most of the people in the war ended up dead and yes the pandavas won technically but there were three generations of men that were basically lost due to the war yeah on a somewhat lighter note, I wanted to ask, what is the timeline of this whole story? Because like we mentioned, there's like three or four exiles that happen, all lasting 10 to 12 years. By the end of the story, when the war is happening, Arjun's son, Abhimanyu, has a wife who is pregnant, and a lot of the Pandava's kids also have kids, but Kunti is still alive. Yeah, I mean, it, age is not an issue when it's it's mythical. So. I guess. And then I guess the the end of the Mahabharata is just all of them decide after the war that they've completed their purpose in life. So they, the Pandavas and Draupadi all walk up the Himalayas to paradise. But on the way there, all of them except for Yudhisthira die and their souls go to heaven. Yudhisthira, they didn't... Wait, I thought they die and they go to like a, a middle area i thought only yudhishthira goes to heaven i think they all go to heaven but yudhishthira is the only one that makes it there in his human form no but i think the bandavas all get reincarnated right because you get reincarnated a certain number of times and then when you achieve moksha then like your soul goes to heaven so i thought it was that yudhishthira is the only one who's achieved that level of dharma whatever yeah yeah maybe i think maybe it's up for interpretation because maybe in palace of illusions it wasn't clear yeah it's vague basically you is the only one that makes it to the gates of heaven physically Mm -hmm. i read this somewhere i don't know if this is true or not but throughout the mabart i read that you has a dog like a faithful (laughs) companion what i love that and then he goes up to the gates of heaven and asks like to enter and the gatekeeper is like well you can enter but your dog can't unfortunately and Yudhisthira is like well if he's out I'm out and he starts to walk away and then the gatekeeper like transforms into Vishnu and he was like psych that was just test bro and then <laughs> and then he's like you he's passed, like, you passed. <laughs> and then oh. the dog and Yudhisthira are allowed in heaven and i was like oh there's a dog throughout all this that's nice <laughs> i thought the dog transforms into bandu maybe like bandu's spirit maybe and he's like it was a test i was your dad the whole time honestly that's probably another rendition yeah. that exists out there yeah that's true there's so many versions of the story that i don't know what levels we hit on when we went through our moments well, 
This was a mess. Yeah, I have a concluding question. So having talked about all of this, what do you think are the lessons we should take away from the Mahabharata? That's a good question. My answer would have to be, there's no solid right or wrong. I think the Mahabharata is written in in a way that maybe the original scripture was meant to show that there is a right and there is a wrong. But I think amongst all the renditions that we read and just reading this in a more modern perspective, the things that were maybe written as wrong had reasons for why they were wrong or maybe weren't as wrong as we thought they were. And so Mm -hmm. I think every character is a good character. And I don't think there's like an actual villain in the Mahabharata, even though the core of us are meant to be. What about you? Yeah, I agree. Nothing is exclusively right or wrong and there's shades to everything and everyone has good and bad in them and i think the other thing i would take away is the concept of individual will versus fate or whatever concept you want to insert in place of fate and i think it's a fine line to walk where you can't just not do anything and leave everything up to the universe and say that what's fated to happen will happen but you also can't have the assumption that everything in your life will be under your control. And I think some of the stories in the Mahabharata and the overarching plot help show that middle ground where you have some control, but ultimately you are just a part of this world and you play a role just like everyone else does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My question was, do you think the Mahabharata was written based off real life events that might have happened but were just interpreted in a more mythical way i've thought about this a lot also with the raman because there's all these stories about the bridge that they build to lanka and like relics or they've discovered stones there i think it was i don't know to what level it was based on real events but i think the story had to have been something that existed in the world Mm-hmm. And I don't know how exactly that works because even though it was written around the new millennium, like zero BC or AD, it's supposedly set in, I think, three or 4,000 BC. And so I don't know why the events would occur then and then someone would chronicle it thousands of years later. That doesn't seem realistic, but I think mm, components were probably based on real events. I think it's analogous Or in my head, what I relate it to is how Jesus was a real person, but that's almost where it ends. Like a lot of the events and stories in the Bible are a little fantastical, like in most religious traditions. And so there is some reality and then everything else has just been expounded upon. Yeah, those people could have existed and someone wrote about it and we interpreted it in a way that is now considered mythology. I think you're right in that it's a creative interpretation of something that's happening, very much like how they used to think people were possessed by demons or witches. And some of that was nonsense and sexism, but some of it was probably people with real mental illness that we now have a better understanding of. But with the worldview they had at that time, that was the best explanation they could give for it. I think a lot of meaning of like, who the people are exactly might have been lost in translation. Yeah. And I, I bet also, so Ekalavia, who we didn't talk about in detail, if you've heard it before, he's the one who cuts off his thumb. We talk about him in, I think, the Great Indian novel episode. Yeah. And he is from either a tribal community or a lower caste. I think both versions are told. But Ekalavia is another interesting character that we didn't get as much of in the two books we read. I think he's been brought up by a lot of Dalit communities as a figure for them. And actually, there's a 20th century poem I found by a Dalit writer, Shashikant Hingonikar, and it goes, if you had kept your thumb, history would have happened somewhat differently. But you gave your thumb, and history also became theirs. Eklavia, since that day, they have not even given you a glance. Forgive me, Eklavia, I won't be fooled now by their sweet words. My thumb will never be broken. And I think he's been brought up as like this figure of how people from historically lower castes have been taken advantage of and overlooked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, 
there's probably a lot we didn't get to in this episode. And like I said, our retelling of this was very, at least what I said was very opinionated, I think. (laughs) But if you are interested in the Mahabharata, you can go back to the beginning of the episode and read some of the books that Shruti mentioned. But also, what is accurate in these kinds of stories? I think it adopts different versions as it gets passed through generations and through time. I just really hope nobody adopts this version that we told as the wit version to tell other people. Because, yeah, I don't think we did it justice, but we did do our best. Speaking of retellings, I wanted to, at the end of this episode, talk about some Mahabharata retellings for anyone who's interested. The ones I mentioned at the beginning of the episode are more faithful, direct translations. Whereas there's actually not that much out there in terms of retellings. I only found a couple. There's a book called Arjuna by Anuja Chandramoli from the perspective of Arjun. There's a book called Garna's Wife, the Outcast's Queen by Kavita Gane. So those are a couple that might be interesting to read. There's actually more retellings of the Ramayan. So there's a book called, I know you mentioned in the Palace of Illusions episode that the Vakaruni's also written The Forest of Enchantments which is a retelling from Sita's perspective. There's a book called Sita by Banumati Narasimhan. But just compared to Greek mythology and classics, and even Shakespeare plays that have a whole catalog of retellings, there's really not that much out there with these traditional South Asian stories. So I wonder if the next few decades will bring some more. Mm-hmm. I would be interested to read them. It would be nice to have it like repopularized and for a more modern audience. Yeah. I really want to do in a future season something similar to what we did this season, but for the Ramayan. Mm-hmm. If, if you're, you're interested, interested in hearing... <laughs> <laughs> We're the same person now. <laughs> so if you're interested in hearing something like that where we do some Ramayan retellings let us know and if there's certain books that you think are really good retellings of the Ramayan just send us an email dm us on instagram we would love to hear it yeah and I just wanted to mention if you are listening to this episode go check out our instagram because we're going to be posting a family tree and I think that's really going to help with all these names that we're throwing out there yeah all right well next episode we are going to be talking about Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shruti, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you. So send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>